Hey, everybody. I'm entertainment journalist Drew Taylor. And I'm filmmaker Charles Hood. And we host Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast. But right now, we're about to launch our first ever universe-expanding miniseries. That's right. Get ready for Light the Fuse presents The Directors. We'll speak to filmmakers who have made iconic Paramount movies and get them to open up in a way that only we can. That's right. Listen to Light the Fuse presents The Directors wherever you get your podcasts. What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. Hi, I'm Josh Olson, and you're watching Trail... Wait a minute. You're listening to The Movies That Made Me, the official podcast of Trailers from Hell. This is a new venture from uh, our fearless leader, Joe Dante. We're starting a podcast, and you're listening to it. And I'm your host. central idea of the show, I guess, is pretty similar to that of the website. And if I can tell a personal story, uh, I, I remember years and years and years ago when um, Laserdiscs first started, which was somewhere back around World War II, I guess. I was I was a young, broke um, uh, art department uh, swing gang crew guy on movies and um, could not yet afford one. But the thing that really made me decide I had to save up was that uh, Taxi Driver was released on Laserdisc with this thing called an audio commentary track in which the director, Martin Scorsese, was going to talk all the way through the film. And I thought, my God, this is everything you could possibly want. And so I did. I saved up forever and I finally got my Taxi Driver Laserdisc. It was CAV, so it flipped about eight times over the course of the film, kind of like old eight tracks. And I sat down to listen to Martin Scorsese's director's commentary in which he was going to reveal all the secrets of uh, how a great filmmaker thinks and does his job. And for two hours, Scorsese proceeded to just tell a lot of amusing stories from the set. And, and my heart was broken because as interesting as that stuff is, I'm looking to learn. Uh, it was a frustrating experience. However, years later, Criterion started releasing Michael Powell audio commentary tracks and Scorsese started doing those. And listening to Martin Scorsese talk about Michael Powell was an amazing insight into uh, both filmmakers, I thought. Um, and it's always struck me as uh, kind of a very, very interesting way to get inside the head um, of artists is rather than ask them to discuss their own up, to get them to talk about the work of other people. A lot of artists don't like to talk about their work. A lot of artists can't talk about their work. Uh, there's a great Elvis Costello story. A journalist asked him uh, what a certain song meant. 
And Elvis said, if I could say it in other words, I would have. I've been on the receiving end of those Q&As. It's, it's, you know, you've already said it. It's up to you to figure it out. So that's kind of, I think, uh, you know, what's at the core of the website, Trailers from Hell, uh, where you get all these wonderful filmmakers talking about their favorite movies and giving you insights both into those films and into their own work. And it's going to be what informs this podcast. So we're here today with a very, very great director uh, and a friend of mine, Miguel Arteta. Miguel uh, burst onto the scene in the late 90s with uh, a wonderful independent film called Star Maps, which he then followed up with the very great, I say it's very great, I'm not sure I can ever go back to it, it made me so uncomfortable, and that's probably a huge overshare, but the very great Chuck and Buck, he's made many other wonderful films, uh, Youth and Revolt, uh, Cedar Rapids, um, my favorite uh, of, of those I think is The Good Girl. He just recently directed uh, Beatrice at Dinner uh, with Selma Hayek, which was um, a both critical and financial hit. Big, big indie smash this summer and an amazing film. Miguel tends to specialize in a kind of genreless genre. Uh, his movies always come wrapped in the bow of a comedy, but... Uh, and while they're often very funny, they, they, they aren't really comedies. And he's made some of the most depressing feel-good movies ever made or some of the happiest feel-bad movies ever made. I can't really put my finger on it. But I'm a huge fan of his work, and uh, he's a, a lovely man as well, as you'll soon see. He's got a new film coming out soon called Duck Butter, which we may or may not talk about because we're not here to talk about Miguel's work specifically. We're here to talk about uh, or at least we'll start talking about and see where it goes. A filmmaker that Miguel is uh, a huge fan of, someone who's influenced his work over the years, and probably one of the last people you'd think of when you think Miguel Arteta. Um, we're going to talk about Russ Meyer. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to violence, the word and the act. While violence cloaks itself in a plethora of disguises, its favorite mantle still remains sex. Violence devours all it touches, its voracious appetite rarely fulfilled. Yet violence doesn't only destroy, it creates and molds as well. Let's examine closely then this dangerously evil creation, this new breed, encased and contained within the supple skin of woman. Uh, so, Miguel, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Josh. Uh, is there anything I should have included in the No, that was that such I've... a lovely introduction. Thank you very much. And like, uh, it is very odd that uh, Russ Meyer is such a huge influence in my career because, you know, he was such a dynamic uh, uh, filmmaker in terms of shooting and editing. And his movies are exciting. And they're like, you know, like, you know, it feels like uh, boxing when you're watching them. <laughs> and my, my movies are, uh, you know, two people talking in a bench. That's uh, true. There's a know, very, uh, there's a kind of very calm, compassionate, but distant observer quality to your films. That, that is definitely not to be found in Russ Meyer, yeah. Um, but I, I, when I saw Beyond the Valley of the Dolls in, like, the early 80s, um, I saw it in Somerville. They had a revival theater there. And it was just one of those movies that I said, like, I'm going to do exactly what those three girls did, get in a van and go to L.A. and make movies. <laughs> I, I mean, they were singing, but whatever they found there, I want to find it. Uh, 
it just blew my mind. Um, it was so exciting. Like, uh, uh, it, you know, the way it's edited, the way it's conceived, the way it works with the music, the way it combines different approaches, you know, uh, to it. Um, uh, and the way he sort of shamelessly puts sentimentality and total brutality together uh, with any disregard, you know, to... I mean, it all adds up. It's like a beautiful tossed salad that just is, like, perfect. Uh, well, yeah, there's certainly... Um you know, when I was sort of running through the list of, of your work and looking at the Russ Meyer uh, oeuvre, um, he, he shares your kind of, I'd say the one thing is, is none of, none of your films are his really fall into neat genres. There are no thrillers. There are no straight comedies. There are no, you know, the, they are, he is in his own way making kind of sort of slice of life character studies, um, which is, I would say in the broadest sense of the word, what, what you excel at. If, uh, um, <laughs> I'm just looking for commonality. Yeah, I, I, I don't know that we'll, we'll be able to find any, except that like his characters are twisted and, uh, and, uh, uh, and there's sadness in his movies. There's always like sadness, uh, which is interesting, uh, uh, because you don't think of his movies, but if you analyze them, you know, beyond the value of the dolls, my favorite character is the, Senator's daughter, who's sure. very tragic and sad, and like, uh, uh, um, and uh, I, I love, you know, there's always moments like that in his movies where you find, like, uh, in, in Mud Honey, which I watched last night, you know, the the woman that that owns the farm that has the horrible alcoholic husband, you know, there, there's like great like funness and sadness for her situation. Uh, there is empathy there, and and uh, you know, I think Russ does have like. A, sort of a, a feeling that people are, you know, tragic and get in their own way, but at the same time, there's also some compassion towards them, you know, uh, uh, deeply buried in there, I think. For sure. And and was um, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls your first? It was the first thing I saw by him, and it just, like, just, like, really did change my life. It just made me realize, okay, you can do anything you want with a camera. Like, you can put it under a bed and then not have the bed there. You can, like... Uh, <laughs> Uh, you you can like you know do slow motion and go into use music that is completely different. You can uh, 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 change tones drastically. It just it just uh, completely energized me. And then I went and had to look at at his movies. Uh, you know, at that time it was you had to go find VHS copies of those, uh, and most most places didn't have like great. So it took a while for me to see. And I, I haven't seen everything, but I, I tried to see as much as I, as I could. And, uh, uh, of course, Faster Pussycat Kill Kill really, really affected me. I did Mud Honey and Vixen. And I even like some of his really, like, pornographic, like, uh, you know, probably some of his worst movies, like Up, you know, sure. like, like uh, are, like, uh, just... There's still, like, an editing, you know, odyssey of fun, Um so uh, uh, yeah, I went and studied him as much as possible. And uh, uh, when I came to LA uh, in 1990, I uh, heard that uh, the 20th anniversary of Beyond the Valley of the Dolls was happening at a place called UCLA. Um, and I drove, you know, my I had a little rabbit, and I put all my stuff belongings in it. And I said, if I go, if I race across America, I might be able to make it. So, like, I was a race against time. I think I made it in, like, two and a half days or something crazy. I was driving around the clock. Uh, at one coming, point... It, coming from... New York. From New York? Yeah, wow. It was, like, very dangerous. <laughs> at one point, I was in the desert uh, somewhere in Arizona, 
and I had no air conditioning, and I remember just swerving and falling asleep and, and realizing I was going like 90 miles an hour and that it, this was really stupid. But um, uh, I made it to, you know, my car was filled with dust, and my belongings were literally on top and also filled with dust. And I found with a Thomas guy that I had to go buy at a 7-Eleven as soon as I landed, uh, ran and made it. I missed the movie, but I made it in time to see the Q&A at oh, UCLA. Uh, and the whole cast was there, and Roger Ebert was there, and Russ was there. And I got to meet all of them, and uh, it was, like, just so, so, so heavenly. Uh, and I got to befriend John Lazar, who's, of course, you know, Z-Man, yes. Z-Man Bartel. Um, I could where, not believe Where it. would we be without Z-Man? <laughs> it's <laughs> a line from the movie. <laughs> um, but it was such a glamorous way to land in L.A. Yeah, July 15... Sure. 1990 uh it was i i could not believe it I, there i was talking to roger ebert and and ross meyer and, and the cast and and uh the girl that that is in the bentley uh uh you know the one that is like the most vampy of all of them oh edie edie williams edie, she was there wearing the original dress wow so uh uh everybody was pretty excited about that 20 years later were you there We'll bring you in. No, that's fantastic. And this, so, so Ebert, how, what was Ebert's relationship with the film at that point? Because I know that when I first came across that film, which I think was, had to be like mid 80s, you know, my brief tenure in college, you know, the big shock was that this had been written by the guy who did that TV show. <laughs> and, and then finding out that at the time he seemed to have kind of disavowed it. He wouldn't talk about it. I know. In later years, he embraced it as he should. I think he went back and forth. Uh, 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 he was very nice to uh, uh, talking about Ross and how brilliant Ross was, and just trying to say he he's a complete auteur was his his line in the in the Q and A. So you know, watch how he cuts, how he shoots, how he like uh, you know stages the scenes. This is a, a person that has like a, a total vision that is cinematic that can only be expressed in in cinema. And uh, you could feel his excitement. You know, I, I hear that he started as a Ross fan, and that's why this all came to be. Oh, Hebert did? Yeah. I, uh, I, I guess I don't know the whole story of how they uh, met. I mean, I'm not sure if it's true. There's a screenplay that's being made now about, that's right, the, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. about them, which tells a story that uh, he uh, was watching his movies in Chicago in the mid-'60s, and Ross would come to the theater because he was literally taking prints around the country sometimes, and he met him in a theater, and... Uh, and stalked and, and Ross hated him, and uh, and then uh, eventually when he got his big shot, he uh, he said, "Well, that guy must be pretty smart. I'm going to give him a shot." I saw Ross talking about about the movie years later, like in like '94, '93, and he said that uh, Roger Ebert. He was very derogatory about Roger, but in a loving way, and he said he was a lazy bastard. He wouldn't write anything. I would ha- I had him in my attic. And I would have to bring a girl every afternoon in order for him to hand two or three pages back. Right. Yes. Uh, I don't know if this is true, but uh, 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 that was that was Russ's uh, uh, commentary when when Roger was not there. I, well, Ebert never denied that, so I guess that's as as good as a confirmation as we'll get. Um, I, I've always been amazed. Just as an aside, do you know what the Sex Pistols connection? Well, uh, I've heard that. Uh, 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 Ross shot two or three days. Right? Yeah, well, it's an amazing story. I guess the the pistols, and you think about, you know, the time when the pistols were sort of ascendant, and the time of Beyond the Valley of the Dolls feel like generations apart, but it's seven years. 
And the Pistols were obsessed with that movie. Or no, it's five, six years. When was that, 1971? Uh, yeah, 70, 70, 70, 71. 70, 71? Yeah, they, we should, I should know this. Um, by the way, the Pistols were obsessed with it, and they were in the process of trying to make a movie. And uh, their manager brought in Russ and, and Ebert to, to, to do the film. And Meyer did not get along well with them at all, but wanted to do the job for some reason. And Ebert wrote an entire script, uh, which I'd love to get my hands on, but there's parts of it. I can't remember where I stumbled across who, who, this. Who Killed Bambi, right? Who Killed Bambi, yeah. And there's parts of it in the Julian Temple film, The Great Rock and Roll Swindle. Oh, cool. But what has always amazed me about Ebert, who you know, was a terrific critic, but gets no credit as a screenwriter. And speaking as a screenwriter, um, I would kill to one day write a line as gorgeous as, yea, I vow it, ere this night does wane, you will drink the black sperm of my vengeance. Yes, I vow it. Ere this night does wane, you will drink the black sperm of my vengeance. But he wrote, there's a line in the Who Killed Bambi, um, you ever get the feeling you've been cheated, which are Johnny Rotten's famous last words at the Cow Palace in San Francisco at the Sex Pistols' last concert. It's like one of the most famous moments in rock and roll, and Johnny Rotten is quoting Roger Ebert. Ah, <laughs> ever get the feeling you've been cheated? Good night. That was insane. And never gets enough credit for that. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Um, I should probably have mentioned... Uh, um when this started, uh, I didn't, I had so much ground to cover, but burying the lead, um, you know, Trails from Hell uh, was started by uh, the great Joe Dante and um, uh, Joe, uh, for, for I guess various reasons of his own, did not want to actually host a podcast, um, but, uh, but he's sitting here. Um, well, we wanted to get somebody more loquacious. <laughs> He's breathing over our shoulders and making I'm sure we get a lot of I'm just lurking. This is our first, our first attempt, and I wanted to make sure that we, you know, that I knew what was going on. I, well, I, I, I realize as we're sitting here throwing all this stuff out that I mean, also you should know that aside from being a very great director, and I'm not going to bother explaining to you who Joe Dante is. Um, Joe is also an encyclopedic. Um, Joe's an encyclopedic encyclopedia of film um, and and knows everything there is to know about every aspect of every human being who's ever worked in movies. So I don't know if there's anything you wanted to jump in with while we were talking about Ebert and Meyer. Well, as the, as the <coughs> oldest person in the room, uh, I saw these pictures when they were new. I remember seeing uh, Lorna, uh, Russ's first picture, uh, at a sleazy... Um, Art house, they used to call them in Philadelphia. Uh, they were called art houses, but what they what, which which theater? Uh, it, it, oh God knows, it was somewhere in East Philadelphia. Uh, they were, they had names like the Art and the Studio, and you know places like that. And every so often they would actually run an art film, but for the most part they just ran as much stuff with sex as they could get. And uh, they had previously been running his nudies, you know, the immoral Mr. T's and those kind of pictures, which are frankly a little hard to sit through these days. They're kind of boring. Uh, but uh, but Lorna was was unusual because uh, it was it was a it was a black and white kind of gritty 
sharecropper kind of movie. And the opening shot is this long tracking shot into an actor that I had grown up watching named James Griffith, who was uh, used to play in a lot of cowboy movies and had uh, apparently co-wrote the script and plays the preacher in the movie. So it gave it this aura of, well, this is a real movie. This is because some of the other pictures that were coming out of New York that were, you know, advertised as sex pictures were, were down and dirty and cheap and crummy and, you know, unwatchable. And this looked like it was a movie. And it was. And it, it had, uh, you know, it was a sort of a cleaned up version of Desire in the Dust. You know, it was, it, was a, it was sort of a studio picture, but getting away with murder because Russ was making it independently. And it became very popular. And it's, it's what led to his ability to make Mud Honey. Uh, and when he sort of got into that uh, sharecropper sex groove, um, and, you know, he had, a, had a, a group of a- actors that he would use over and over, Hal Hopper and Stuart... Stuart Lancaster. Stuart Lancaster. By the way, I, uh, uh, when I was at AFI making my short film as a student, in walks in it to my audition for my stupid little film, Stuart Lancaster, and I'm like, just I just literally almost took a dump. I could not believe it. <laughs> Did and you cast him? Of course. Oh, okay. <laughs> and, was, the part was, and it was for a woman. <laughs> exactly. Any part you want, Stu. He could not really talk too well. I think he had had some problems, but uh, uh, and he was very surprised because he's like, "Don't I have to audition?" And I was like, "No, you do not have to audition." <laughs> I'm just thrilled to meet you. And uh, yeah, he he played an anvil in a little in my in my student film at AFI. He was he was awesome. Did uh, did you grill him? Of course, I grilled him. Yeah, uh, that's he, the whole secret of working with actors that I, you've yes. seen is you just have to have, find as much time as possible to, f- to ask them stuff. And yeah. a lot of times there isn't much time. I ended up doing slates on one picture just so I could talk to John Carradine you know, <laughs> because we were, we were going so quickly. I mean, there was no time otherwise. It was that was the only time I had to talk to him. <laughs> Um, Stu said that uh, Russ would say action this way. He would say, and now, voluptuous action. (laughs) (laughs) Sam Foley used to shoot off a gun, I guess. Yes. (laughs) Different effect. Uh, He also said that um, he would treat him terribly. Uh, uh, He he was bold, as you know. And he said, like, Russ was very picky about uh, anything reflecting, and he would always come to his head and be like, we're we're getting a kicker off the noggin. Bring me the doll, dolling spray, and he would literally just like put his hand over his eyes and doll his skull uh, until he could shoot him. So you don't get insights like this on other podcasts. Exactly, exactly. Um, uh, yeah, these are not stories you tell about yourself and making your own movie. Do you become Joe after seeing Norner? Where you like, okay, I got to see this guy's next. Movie. I, well, I was into. Directors. I was into discovering new people, yeah. and particularly an indep- independent movies that uh, were. There were a lot of really interesting independent movies in the '60s, uh, almost all black and white. Many from the East Coast, and uh, Carnival of Souls, and you know those kind of. And you have to go to the furthest environs of the. the the neighborhood to be able to find a theater that was playing these kind of things and it was often a very grungy theater often a you know sort of a dangerous neighborhood or whatever but there was really nowhere else to get to see these things and i was kind of a completist i mean if i if i heard of a movie that i wanted to see i had to seek it out and sometimes they'd play on 42nd street but i was most of the time i was in philadelphia so i didn't really get to go uh, uh to 42nd street often enough um and and yes russ obviously had something going on and and as I watched the movies, as he, you know, kept grinding them out, uh, I became very enamored of his editing style. 
I mean, I, I think one of his greatest strengths was that he was he was an incredible editor, a master, really. And 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 he obviously, as editors do when they become directors, you know, he shoots for what he needs, and he didn't probably. I don't think there's a lot of stuff on the cutting room floor of Russ's pictures. I mean, I think it was pretty much shot the way he wanted to. But as you said, the the uh, the facility with which he can stretch the uh, the rules of editing and storytelling uh, was quite unusual. And, 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 and when he finally did get his shot to do studio pictures and took that ethos to a staid place like 20th Century Fox, where Richard Zanuck practically lost his job over <laughs> the picture, the combination of Beyond the Valley of the Dolls and Myra Breckenridge, um, was that was, a, one, two punch. that was a, yeah. that was a that was a tough year for Fox, um, but but Russ still had another picture on his contract, and so they gave him the Seven Minutes, which was a Jacqueline Suzanne type picture about a fake author named J.J. Jadway who was, tried. You know, got, got this. Well, actually, don't look at it as a story movie. Look at it as an exercise in editing, because it's really a very interesting movie on that level. Uh, Story-wise, it's not as good as, you know, uh, a a 60s TV episode. But it's got the way that he tells the story and the way that he juxtaposes the images, combined with the fact that the cast is all geriatric stars from the 40s, uh, makes it a pretty unique movie. I, I, I yeah, my memory of it is just it's a lot of old people talking. Um, <laughs> I've got there's a beautiful. You know, I'm, uh, I'm obsessed Tom, with Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, and, I'm, I've, and Tom Selleck, I think, makes an appearance right in yeah. Seven Minutes. Oh, he's in Seven Minutes too. Oh, yeah. oh God, he's in everything and Sextet. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, he made the rounds. Now there's a there's a great um, uh, Arrow just did a wonderful Blu-ray of Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, which I got to go along with my Criterion Blu-ray because they're slightly different transfers. That's how insane I am. But the Arrow thing also comes with a DVD of the seven minutes, which I have not found uh, uh, the wherewithal to domestic, watch uh, yet. That's, that's domestic but, Arrow, not the... Not, no, no, the British. No, the, it's, it's the British, British yeah. You need yeah, an all That's why it's got an extras. Blu-ray player. But yeah. Um, but yeah, that was always something that, that fascinated me, especially when, you know, I was first starting to become aware of him in the 80s, which was the heyday of MTV and you know, what we thought was quick editing <laughs> back then. <laughs> and it, it always astonished me how influential he was on all these people who would never acknowledge him. And I've always felt that if, you know, if, if Russ had been obsessed with cars or architecture or something else, that, that the world would have no problem hailing him as a cinematic genius. Well, you, you know, you got to remember that these pictures were considered pretty much beyond the pale right no because he was he was into boobs like if, yeah. he, if he made the same car you know the same movie except focusing on cars he'd be fine um but you know there's people who are into boobs like michael bay and he has not really produced that quality of work I but was, he, I he's was, not I willing to go this, all the way i will say this for the record michael bay is no russ meyer so. <laughs> that is a bold <laughs> statement sir. Uh, i think if he just unleashed and just just went whole i mean Clearly, Russ Meyer never held back in that regard. That was, as you say, what did he say? What he said? Action, voluptuous yeah, no. action. How many, how many Russ Meyer movies could you make on one Michael Bay budget? I know. He could have his career five times over. I, I know. <laughs> uh, uh, but, you know, like, uh, interestingly enough, like, uh, Michael, is obs- uh, Michael Bay is obsessed with editing. Like, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, like uh, he shoots just to edit as well. But it's, he's, you know, you get a get a different chef, you get a different sauce <laughs> behind it. By the way, maybe that's what this show should just be. It should just be 
have we should have him next, and just every week it's a different director talking about Russ Meyer. Oh my God, that, you you would be an interesting show. <laughs> be an interesting show. They, they, Wonder how long we could go. It might have a somewhat small uh, market, but <laughs> you never know. Um, so so let me and Joe, as long as you're here, just just because again, I was I was watching Mud Honey again this weekend, which is sort of I, of of the. I don't want to call it a lesser Meyer, but at least lesser known Meyer. It's always kind of one of my favorites because it's it's unique in his pantheon. He used to call it my Gothic period. Yeah, which lasts one movie. I always thought that was considered major Meyer. I mean, to me, to me, minor Meyer is when you get into Black Snake. Right? Oh yeah, yeah, no, you no. Know, I mean, I, but stuff. I think in terms of the ones people, you know, everyone knows Beyond the Valley of Dolls, and everyone knows Faster Pussycat, yeah. and and then you get into kind of you know, and there's some Lorna, but Mud Honey doesn't come up. That, although there is a rock band named after it mm-hmm. yeah. uh, but it's it, it, it is an exceptional movie isn't it like yeah. the, the, the main guy i don't know what his name is he's a great actor and he's acting in a very naturalistic way and then everybody else is chewing the scenery in the most delicious way except you know of course lorna who's uh, playing a mute no no that's that's not lorna she's uh, lorna's the um She's the, 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 what is it, the other blonde. Oh, the other blonde. Oh, yeah, the, uh, the mute is a German actress. I know this because I was flipping oh, through well, that's a reason volume one of my gigantic Russ Meyer autobiography. Um, giant hardcovers. And apparently her name was either Rena or Renata. He, he seems to not be able to make up his mind. And he was having an illicit affair with her while he was making he was? the movie. What? Because Eve, Eve, his wife, was producing the film at the time, and he apparently still feels guilty about it. But, um, yeah, my sense is she did not speak English very well, which is why she's a mute. But, but you know, the movie is, is, is amazing. It does start all as an editor's dream. You know, the first five minutes is all close-ups of feet and feet, hands yeah. and, and, and people coming out of body parts. Doors opening. Uh, and, and it goes on for a long, long time. And uh, that's not easy to bluff. I've tried. And it gets it's, if you don't shoot it right, it, it just doesn't work. I that's so because I kept sitting there going, "Why isn't this boring yet?" Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know that I could easily make the first five minutes of that film. I dull mean, as. it's as good as pick, Pickpocket, you know, like the first five minutes of Pickpocket. Like, uh, 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 and I don't know which movie came first, by the way. Like, yeah, I wonder if they those people influenced each other. Uh. That's an interesting question. I think I have a miniature computer here. I um, find out. Oh, you can't do that. You can't, you can't take out your phone and push <laughs> you stuff can. up. It's, it's 2017. It's just so easy. It's just not fair. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, as you watch the movie, though, like what I was really struck about is like the strength of the women. You know, there's a lot of, uh, obviously, a discussion well, whether Russ Meyer is a feminist. Well, if you want to see empowered women, I mean, <laughs> go to Russ Meyer. <laughs> But like you know, the the woman who plays their wife to the alcoholic who rapes her in the first scene, uh, at the end of the, at the climax of the movie, like uh, you know, everybody's had it with that alcoholic rapist who's her husband, and she stops you know the the sheriff and her new boyfriend saying we can't just leave him. It's not right. It's just not right. He it's he's a, he's sick, and like it wouldn't be right to do that. And here's this woman telling the men. How things ought to be, and the two men looking at her and saying, "She's right. We can't just leave him, and we ought to have some compassion for this guy, who you've hated the whole movie." Mm-hmm. And then the town, of course, you know, like there's, you know, there's a beautiful line from the from the sheriff saying, like, things, you know, people have been cheated in this town so much, things have gone wrong that I forget what, what he says, you know, that, that that hate can just spring so easily and go in any which direction, and like. You know the town ends up like lynching the lynching the guy. Uh, 
I think there is such a like accurate portrayal of what America is uh, in that film, and a strong portrayal of what a, of women's you know positions. The women change the mind of the of the main guy at the end of the movie. It's, it's quite remarkable. Yeah, no, that's certainly true. I mean, he he really does. Yeah, I mean, Joe, I, I don't you're joking or not, but I mean, there's no, this I'm not, weird. I wasn't joking. <laughs> I, I, it's of course he is almost a feminist women. for being such a. Of sexist course, he's thing. exploiting women. But you know, when you would look at the you look at the movies, the women drive the stories. The women drive Absolutely, the characters. Yeah. What they do, uh, and they almost always triumph. Yeah, it's it's. I know he had a very interesting relationship with his mother. That may have had. Uh, um, she was a breast, breastfed? What? Yeah, right. I'm sure. Yeah, he writes about her a lot in his incomprehensible book. Uh, his sister was crazy, right? Like she was in an insane asylum. I, I think so. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. Yes. Um, but uh, I, I mean, the, the rape part is no good. But uh, but especially making rape scintillating, which he goes on to do. You know, like that was uh, pretty common, though. Yeah, even was, in mainstream movies, it, it yeah. was. Uh, uh, but uh, barring that, uh, he, I do think that there are strong women. You know. Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, uh, those you know are unforgettable characters. I think uh, the the three of them and everybody. Well, the, gets... the men in that film are all I mean, weird. They're, they're <laughs> odd and they're all kind of gormless. Who's the? I never remember his name. I remember everybody else. You know, but the the, the boyfriend. Uh, yeah, to- so ineffectual. Yeah, uh, the one who falls off the rafters, <laughs> and you cheer every time he drops. It's. Uh... Oh no! The only nice guy is the African American guy that like uh, I think you see a waiter at the party that ends, yeah ends, yeah ends, the ends lawyer with the drummer yes uh, they have that beautiful montage rolling down the hills yeah together, no, that's a like, great uh, <laughs> actually rolling in the hay literally. <laughs> Oh, but but you know, like his vision of America is like in, the, in those gothic movies. Is, I mean, really, sort of the uh, palpable, like willing to hate, like you know, like not you know, like embracing uh, uh, you know a compassionate approach, which we are still dealing with, was really, really, really accurate in those. I think it's uh, Lorna Mudhoney and Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. Those, if you look at them together. Is like that's the people that uh, that voted for Trump that got him elected. Like he's representing like that kind of a uh, world and criticizing it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, that's what those movies played too, for the most part. His yeah. black and white period. Yeah. <laughs> and then when he looks at the sixties, is amazing. Like you know, like Beyond the Valley of the Dolls is also like you know sort of saying this is got a lot of pluses, but it's also going to go belly up in a bad way. Uh, this this sort of quote unquote party and you know it was kind of kind of uh, 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 predicting that you know well, it's such an sense. odd film too because it's so I mean he's so completely not of that culture that the film is about and yet weirdly somehow captures aspects of it that a lot of filmmakers who were don't but it's, it's like when a foreign filmmaker comes to America and you very much so many, yeah. oh, well yeah. wow that's an interesting way of looking at it you know because he's you're right he, he was that's that wasn't his scene it wasn't his scene at all and apparently yeah. not Ebert's and I, I constantly wrestle with you know how much of that film I mean it's just it's a brilliant film but it is one of those movies that when you first come across people talk about in that horrible way of being so bad it's good and then to me, it's sort of it's it's the movie that shatters that argument because finally you come to realize that Beyond the Valley of the Dolls is just great. And I wish Eber had written a book about it and he could have entitled it. It's not it's not my happening, but it freaks me it out. Freaks me out. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> such such great dialogue. That's the trouble with people today, all uptight about tomorrow, hanging on to yesterday. It's no good. No good at all. There's only one time that counts. Now, 
right now. If you don't live for now, well, you might as well just roll over and take the full count. Um, are you, uh, how about this? Um, uh, put you on the spot. If, if someone came to you right now and said, we've got some money, um, we want you to make a movie. Uh, the only, the only criteria is you have to remake a Russ Meyer film and it can't be beyond the Valley. No one in the right mind would touch yeah, beyond the Valley yeah. at all. Anyway, what, what Russ Meyer film would you Miguel Arteta? <laughs> I think I were to do Vixens. Vixen. Okay. Yeah. Because there's all that, like, just like weird brother sister stuff there that, like, uh, just would be a lot of fun to explore. I can actually see that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that, uh, uh, I hear there's that, a lot of close quarters, too. It is yeah, a lot of, yeah, you know, it's, little it's, it's, it's a mellower pace, too. Uh, uh, it's simpler. Um, I think that's the one I, w- I, w- I will go for. Um, and I've always wanted to shoot a, a movie in the woods, and I've never done it. Uh, have you done that, Joe? Yes, watch out for ticks. <laughs> oh, <laughs> especially, yeah, I know you can get Lyme disease. Uh, but um, uh, I hear that Beyond uh, but, uh, Faster Pussycat Kill Kill might be remade by Tarantino instead. Something you've heard? I, that's a rumor that goes around every now and then. I'm not so sure it. that he hasn't already remade it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, How about as long as we've got Joe here, Joe, what would um, – uh, same same question. What's the what's the Russ Meyer film that you'd uh, – <laughs> I'm not, really, you I'm not generally into remakes. Ah, yes, um, no, that's a given. Well, nobody's mentioned Cherry, Harry, and Raquel, which is uh, a pretty good picture. And it's it's also a very mainstream picture, much more so than I think even Vixen, um, because it's got a lot of action on it. And uh, it, it takes place in the dead. It's got the great Charles Napier, who I think may have been discovered by Russ. I believe so, yeah. Um, yeah. And um, I remember being very impressed with it when I reviewed it in 1969 I think it came out um, and so I and I think that you could that's got a story that you could remake I remember I mean not, not that anyone asked the, the one I'd go for is the one I remember seeing um, actually in the same theater in uh, which the climax of American Werewolf in London is set in Soho uh, I saw Super Vixens for the first time which would which would be which would be my pick it's such mm. a, it's a great road picture and uh, incredible action, crazy violence, and, and Charles Napier again. Also, um, he was so awesome. Uh, he was Jonathan Demme's lucky uh, charm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, uh, he's he. You know, he he uh, he didn't. Did he ever get a movie all of his own? Charles Napier. I don't think he ever he starred in a picture man. on his own. Nothing. Uh, nothing. Always, that, it was usually you know. an ensemble. Yeah. Yeah. But he's always, it's always a thrill when he shows he, up. He showed up even for, at the 20th anniversary. He was there. You know, he only has one scene in, the, in Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. He comes in uh, unexplained to the party. And, oh, no, but he's, he comes in later, too. He's, he he's does? Briefly, yeah, I think he's got maybe two scenes. But, yeah, yeah, sort of at the end when everything's all right. I always then, thought he should play Sergeant Rock. Um, yeah. I mean, he had this that, that jaw, that cartoon yes. jaw. Yes. Um, but I don't think he ever starred in a picture. Certainly nothing that... that yeah, anyone would know. I mean, I wonder if he's got like a Timothy Carey, World's Greatest Sinner, buried mm, I don't away think somewhere. He, I don't think he was uh, into doing directing and There's writing his thing. own stuff. I mean, he was an actor. Do you guys think that Russ has the respect he, he deserves? It's it's hard to say because of the way things have changed. Uh, you know, the way movies are seen and the way that people encounter them. 
Um, you know, he didn't certainly have much respect when his pictures were playing in, you know, sleazeball theaters. Uh, but, and I think, you know, after he went to Fox and he made some pictures and they were considered like, oh, he's in, now he's an A, A-list director. Um, I think they always considered his stuff too offbeat to be considered mainstream, which I guess it was. But uh, as far as general knowledge of of Russ, the, you, you have to take into account where people see movies and how they see them, and and the general state of film literacy. You know, we now exist in a time where more movies are available to see than ever were at any time in our lives. But there are so many of them, and there's so many more being disgorged every day uh, that it's almost impossible for people to differentiate. And uh, that's one of the reasons we started the website was to get people to give people recommendations for movies they probably wouldn't encounter normally in their, in their normal travails. When I was growing up, there were old movies everywhere. They were just, they were filler. They would, they were on all night. Uh, now that's, that's all disappeared. People, the idea of an old movie is, it's kind of irrelevant to a lot of younger people. Partly because the movies are old and partly simply because they just don't speak to what they see around them. Well, it's also there's so much content, it's hard keeping up with what came out this week. Well, it is. I mean, look at, look at all the TV stations we have yeah. now and all the, all the new shows, that the, the, the New York Times and the Washington Post, what to watch this week, you know, and then they have this list of things that you're supposed to watch this week, and usually you've never heard of any of them. Half of them are imports from overseas. Some of them are five years old that we never saw until now. So there's just this tremendous disgorgement of stuff to see. And where does Russ fit in that? Well, I, I would say, though, I, I haven't, I can't recall, you know, obviously there was that wonderful period when, when John Waters kind of legitimized him to some extent into his kind of wonderful alternative culture and, and things started happening there. And I, I've never met a filmmaker who doesn't respect Meyer. Put it this way, I've, I, I would say that, like, you either, the two answers you get are who or, oh, my God, he's great. I think these days, and I think that's yeah. changed from twenty, thirty years ago. I felt like in the nineties he had the respect, you know. Like uh, 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 I went to see him speak like three or four times, and he was a great was, speaker. He, he, was, he was a he was a great guy. To, uh, he came and taught my my class in the, the Philadelphia College of Art. They brought him over, and he talked to the kids. And this was like in sixty five. Oh wow! And he was very. Uh, eloquent and um I, we, we we followed him down the street for like eight blocks you know because he used to, would just talk the kids would you know and, and the kids who were interested would follow him and he was very forthcoming and uh just very charming uh do you have do you how much time you, you got to spend with him there I, you... I don't know the, the hour he talked and then the 20 minutes that it yeah. took him to outrun me uh, <laughs> did, did he refer to himself as meyer uh, I don't remember him referring to himself. I think that, that, that seems to be a, a thing in all of his interviews. I, I had one. I, I was so craven. Uh, he it was back in the VHS days when he started. They, they, they started leaking out, and yeah. there was no well, he IMDb. Was, he was, and, I think putting them out himself. Yeah, yeah, and it was it was hard to find out. You know, you just didn't know how many Russ Meyer movies there were. And um, uh, I had first moved to California, and I was renting uh, videos at Video Archives in Manhattan Beach um, from from Quentin Tarantino. And and I noticed that the Russ Meyer movies all had the same label, that RM on it. Yeah. And there's a phone number. And, you know, it really was. It was the best video store I've ever been to in my life before. Or so it was hands down. And they clearly were not getting all of them. And I thought, well, maybe I can call this company and see. And, you know, I, I assumed I'd get some 
secretary at some you know big corporation. I dial the number. Guy picks up the phone. He goes, Meyer. I said, Russ Meyer. <laughs> yeah. What do you want? And and I just completely chickened out and hung up the phone. And that that's my <laughs> sum total of oh, my no. encounter with Rob. What do you say? I was not prepared. I was. That's you know, <laughs> this was 1986. I wasn't used to talking to you know legendary directors who uh, answered their own phone. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he, apparently uh, yeah. he kept that. He took that. his own orders. And yeah. I know. Yeah. Yes. Yes. He kept doing that till he died. Uh, 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 a guy I know, this guy John Shearer, was his assistant in the last like four or five years. When you know he had, he had uh, Alzheimer's. And uh, uh, and he was there. To, his job was to do that, to, to mm. take the orders. But apparently, Russ still would take the phone from him and say, "You're not doing it right," and like, like, uh, uh, and, and answer his own phone calls. It's amazing. Um, I got, I got to just shake his hand and take a picture with him after he gave a talk. Uh, it was definitely one of my proudest moments in Hollywood. Sure. <laughs> Um, I also, I don't even know if, it, I'm sure it's still in print. You can go to his website, which, I mean, this is not a plug, so I'm not prepared for it. But there is a Russ Meyer website, and you can get all of his movies still on VHS. Um, or no, DVDs. He's, they're selling DVDs now. And uh, uh, But I bought, um, years ago, I, I got his three-volume autobiography, A Clean Breast. giant hardcover book, and I ordered it. And it, it actually arrived at my doorstep the day he died. Um, uh-huh. But it's a fascinating book. We have volume two sitting here because... Yes. Very heavy. It. It's it's um, uh, it's a first draft. <laughs> it's just kind of it just rambles on, and there are photographs that sometimes connect to what he's writing about, and sometimes don't. And he tells the same story over and over again. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but um, it's pretty fascinating work. And supposedly, there's a he was working on a giant documentary that was also going to be no, it was going to be called The Breast of Russ Meyer. Do you remember That's this? right. I heard and, him speaking about that at the Sunset Five last time I saw him speak in the like late 90s. He said he was... Like a 15-hour documentary of yeah. his life. He was very serious. He was yeah. just going to saying it's going to be incredible and it's going to be I don't know how many hours long. Yeah. And I'm so who's in, who's in charge of his estate these days? I I, don't I wouldn't Im- I, I could no. imagine that there you know with all the proliferation of television channels that there would be a market it's, for a it's, I don't want to speak ill of anyone I don't know but and I don't want to say this the most positive way possible they could be doing a better job it's it's you go back and there's still DVDs like they haven't bumped anything to Blu-ray Russ was an amazing photographer you'd think there you know there would definitely be money in in Blu-ray sets hmm. of Russ Meyer films I would think. Criterion, um, are you listing? Yeah, Criterion <laughs> to get in there. I mean, it 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 definitely seems like there's there's uh, especially if this movie. I mean, I've been hearing for two years about the Beyond the Valley of the Dolls movie being made uh, about the uh, making uh, of. Yeah, I went and so, met on it. I wanted to do it. So I, David Permit is one of the producers. I went. I went. I, I had a meeting with him too. Yeah, but uh, I don't. To my knowledge, nothing's happened. Uh, yeah, I heard that they had Jonah Hill playing uh, to play, play uh, Ebert. Yeah. Ebert. Um, uh, it's a tough one to, to pull off because uh, uh, also just to recreate like uh, those sets and all of that is just like you know they're not going to give you the money to go do 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 do, do that the right way. I, I think I think their their problem is that uh, as as enthusiastic as we may be about the subject, uh, that I don't think that there is a huge market waiting for the story of Roger Ebert and, and Russ Meyer. I, I, sure, but there wasn't, okay. I mean, I, I, think, I, I know what you'll say to this, and you're right, but I mean, there wasn't a mark, you know, who, who wanted to see a movie about Ed Wood and Bela Lugosi? Well, no one, as it turned out. Exactly. Well, <laughs> and yet, still, mean it isn't a great still movie. one of the greatest movies of life. 
um, uh, yeah, I was trying to come up with one of those that had actually been a huge hit. Like, well, the, the, I, I, I think it's. Uh, I, I think if you could make it cheap enough, and you could make it for TV, uh, you could maybe get it made. But I just don't see that working a, as a feature film. A, uh, one of those, uh, like a Ryan Murphy series. Yeah, yeah. Or, or if some, or if some huge star decided they wanted yes. to play the lead, yes. but it would have to be a huge I mean, star Chris, physically. Christopher huge. Nolan figured out what he's doing after Dunkirk. I mean, that might be a, <laughs> That would be a magnificent subject. It would be interesting in 70 millimeter. Uh, yeah. Oh, my God, an IMAX. Rus- oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Those are some big things. It actually has to be an IMAX, doesn't it? Uh, 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 we have not not properly covered Ross Myers. It's not possible. Even himself, at 15 hours, uh, was not able to do it. That we is did, true. Uh, we did, that we is did, true. We did the best we could. <laughs> we did. Uh, um, but we'll be back next week with Michael Bay talking about Russ Meyer, and then uh, I think Allison Anders will be coming in to talk about Russ Meyer. And uh, uh, you shouldn't promise things you can't. Deliver. Sophia Coppola is coming in, and I think she's going to be talking about Russ Meyer. And no, I have no idea. Um, but anyway, uh, Miguel, I, I want to thank you very much for coming in and uh, thank you for having me talking about this with us. It's been a lot of fun. And, thank you for being had. Um, um, Joe, thank you for the opportunity. Thank well, you. For, you know, Russ Meyer's uh, uh, tomb was uh, uh, apparently it says in a. Uh, king of the nudies I was glad to do it <laughs> that's how I feel about this thank you fantastic um, and thank you for listening uh, this if you been, did if you did yes if, if you, you made it this far <laughs> this has been the Trailers from Hell podcast and uh, we'll be back next week probably not talking about Russ Meyer but you never know um, Josh Olson signing off hey All right. Uh, As you may have noticed, we recorded this interview a little while ago. Uh, In the interim, Miguel's film, Beatrice at Dinner, uh, has gone on to be a tremendous success, uh, won many awards, been nominated for many others, and his new film, Duck Butter, has just come out. Two amazing and much-deserved great reviews. Check them both out. We'll see you next week. Our show is recorded in Hollywood, California, at the crossroads of the world. We are the official podcast of TrailersFromHell.com, the best damn movie website there is. Our engineer is Don Barrett, who also wrote, produced, and created our theme song. This is Josh Olson for the Movies That May Be. This is my happening, and it freaks me out. Spend less time staying in the know about all things gaming and more time actually watching and playing what you want with the IGN Daily Update Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to hear the latest from IGN on the world of video games, movies, and television with news, previews, and reviews. So listen and subscribe to the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. That's the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts.